Well, we're beginning a new study this morning from the book of 1 John, and uh, I've been in the book of 1 John myself for quite a while in the last couple months. It's been uh, very edifying, and so I I pray that uh, you will be blessed, encouraged, challenged, and uh, also granted even more assurance if you are a person that's in Christ. And so as we go through this together, um, may God bless it. Uh, The message of this sermon this morning, which is going to cover just the first four verses really of uh, 1 John, uh, is the title is Reliable Witness. And before I get to the text itself, I feel like when we start a new study and a new book, it's good to give kind of some overview of what's, what this book is about. Um, so First John, it's a letter from John the Disciple. This is the same John who wrote the fourth gospel, uh, the gospel of John. He's the same John that wrote the Revelation. So uh, sometimes we, we think about Paul being, you know, this guy who wrote uh, 13, I think 13 of the New Testament books, but uh, some of them are shorter and some of them are longer. But John also had a significant contribution when you consider the length of uh, the Gospel of John and the Revelation especially, although his letters are a little shorter and uh, makes for maybe a little easier of a study. So the audience of this letter is not stated in the letter itself. Now Paul, usually in his letters, you, you could see either in the Usually in the introduction of the letter, he would say who it was to specifically. Uh, all we know from John's letter specifically is that it's to believers. It's people that who have put faith in Jesus Christ. And, but it seems like John had probably, there was almost uh, what they called the Johannine churches because he had founded churches which would have mostly been in what is today Turkey. And uh, so that seems to be probably where it was written, and, and just like Paul's letters, it's one of those letters that would maybe go from church to church. It would, we'd send it over to Scott, and he'd write it down carefully and make a copy and send it over to the next church, and, then, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, that way, over time, we ended up with a lot of manuscripts of uh, a lot of the New Testament material. Uh, the timing of this was probably the late first century. Um, uh, most, mostly the agreement is there that it was written after the Gospel of John. Uh, and so that's the timing of it. Uh, John's style of writing is, is really, um, it, it's an interesting way. And it's harder for us to appreciate maybe because we're reading it in English. He wrote it in Greek. But his Greek that he used was very simple, very straightforward. Um, he didn't use a lot of flourishes, let's put it that way. In fact, someone compared the way that John wrote to how Winston Churchill spoke. Uh, he used a very basic language. He didn't, he didn't use complicated language, but with power and clarity. And so that's how John wrote. John had a pet topic, and that was love. Uh, in fact, a lot of people refer to the Gospel of John as the Gospel of Love. And uh, they sometimes even refer to him as the Apostle of Love. And of course, he referred to himself as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. Love was an important topic 
to John. Now, what were the purposes of this letter? We'll find them out as we go through, but uh, in brief, uh, one major purpose is that he's refuting heresies. There were already some heresies in the church very early on. Uh, they start very early, uh, and, that, and that's something that we always have to be careful of uh, because most heresies actually do come out of the church, unfortunately. So that would be one purpose of the letter was to refute some heresies that were floating around already. Um, also to give assurance to believers that they would come away uh, with a more solid assurance of their faith. Uh, one purpose was to charge Christians to live in the light. And by that he, he explains that that means to not live in sin but to live in righteousness. At the same time he realized that Christians do indeed sin. And uh, and, and he said, if you, if you deny that, then you're, you're self-deceived. But he said, if you confess your sin, famous passage, right, uh, that you're, you, you will be forgiven of those sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. Another uh, major purpose to go along with his pet topic of love, he is throughout the book of 1 John proclaiming boldly that Christians are not should be, they are people of love. And a mark of believers is their love for one another and their love for Christ and their love for not just the people in the church but also outside as well. Because we've received love from God, if we do not love, we're not born of God, John says. And if we are born of God, then we'll have evidence of love. So those are some of the background of this uh, book, which is a short five uh, chapters, um, depending on your reading speed, you could probably read this book maybe on the lower side, 10 to 12 minutes, and if you're maybe a lower, more methodical reader, probably in less than half an hour you would read the book of 1 John. So, uh, so today, again, we're going to focus on the first four verses, which is kind of like the, the intro, which is, he doesn't give much of an intro, he jumps right in, but um, the big idea this morning that we want to remember from those first four verses is that John is a reliable witness. And he invites believers to recognize the fellowship that is found in Christ and in the church. So I want to read the first, I'm actually going to read the whole first chapter, although we're going to focus on the first four verses. So I will read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some translations say your joy may be complete. Um, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So again and again, we say that one important element of biblical studies is that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So John's writings, when we combine them all together, when we look at the Gospel of John, the letters of John, and also the Revelation, uh, his writings contain many clues to what drove him. And so what might be not quite as clear in one spot we can look and see well what did John think over here and we can draw from that and we can put things together even better because we have so much material to, to choose from that John wrote and we, so we see how John perceived Jesus we see how he perceived himself and what his hopes were for the churches he founded and so when we see John's first words here that which was from the beginning even those uh, who have a basic grasp of his gospel, may, may their mind might just immediately go to John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with, in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which Gunner memorized a couple years ago. <laughs> so... So that's where a lot of people think, well, oh, he's talking about the beginning. Let's go to John 1, 1, and he's talking about the beginning. And in John 1, the gospel of John 1, 1 through 3, John is clearly talking about the very beginning, the creation. Now, that's what some people uh, who have studied this thinks, think that John refers to. However, it is also possible that J John means here not the beginning of all creation, but the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Or the incarnation, that is, the coming of Jesus, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And in John 1.14, he wrote, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it, it seems to me in this context, it's likely John is referring more to either the birth of Jesus itself or the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. And the reason I think this is the meaning because he is saying that we, and John includes himself and others, who witnessed the ministry of Jesus. We heard, he said. We saw. We touched. And so it seems less likely that he's referring to the very beginning, isn't it? Because he didn't see and touch the creation when it was happening. And so it's more likely that he's talking about either the beginning of Jesus' ministry or the incarnation because he himself is saying we were witnesses to this. So he, that's what it seems like to me, at least, that he's speaking of. Now we see that John provides to his readers what I am calling a triple verification of his claims. Or maybe you could just say he's giving some really solid evidence. He was an eyewitness. He was an ear witness. And he also had a hands-on experience. Now this is important for a couple of reasons. One, it shows that he was really there. I was there. We were there, he's saying. He wasn't claiming that he was just repeating something he heard in the past from others about Jesus, but he was there. He heard Jesus with his own ears. 
He doesn't simply say, I saw him from a distance. Uh, he walked past, you know, like sometimes people say, yeah, I saw the president's motorcade as it went past. That it's not the same as shaking his hand, is it? He doesn't, uh, he says, I was there. I touched him. I heard his words with my own ears. I saw him with my very own eyes. I touched him with these hands. I am a reliable witness, John is saying. Or he's really saying we. He's talking about himself and others who were apostles or disciples of Jesus who saw him. But perhaps even more important than that, John is dealing with heresies uh, that had already arisen in this time. And these heresies, by the way, are still around today. They, the, a lot of the heresies that, that are in the church have been there from the very beginning. They may morph and change a little bit, but the, the basics have been there. Uh, the heresies that John is combating with are specifically centered on the idea that Jesus, according to the Bible, was fully God and fully man. That's the, what the Word of God teaches. But heretics have said something different than that. So I want to just list three here. There's lots of heresies, and sometimes it's good to study them a little bit so that we can know what's out there, and also so that we stay loyal to the truth. And if we have a conversation with someone who believes one of these, that we can gently correct them with God's word. So one of the heresies, the one that John seems to be addressing probably in this passage is called docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. You don't have to write that down or remember it necessarily. Uh, But this heresy of docetism said, well, Jesus never really had a human body. Rather, it just appeared to be so. And so he was either a ghost or a spirit or some kind of visual trick was being played. Obviously, that's a problem for our faith, isn't it? If Jesus didn't have a human body, then many things in Scripture are false. There's no virgin birth then, because you wouldn't need one. There would be no true death. There would be no true resurrection. And so this was one of the earliest heresies in the church, and they, it's called docetism, but basically saying Jesus never had a real human body. Another heresy is just the opposite. This heresy says that Jesus was not God, that simply a a prophet or a nice man or a teacher or something like that, or he was a created being of God, a son of God, but not God himself. And so there's many cults today even that hold to this, a variety of this heresy, uh, among them Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And then there is a heresy that is somewhere maybe between those two, and that was the, that there was the man Jesus, and God temporarily possessed him. And, then, and some of the ones who believe that say, well, when the uh, Gospels talk about the, the Spirit coming on Jesus at his baptism, that was when he, he had God in him, and then sometime before the cross, and then God abandoned him, and, and it was, uh, the rest of the time it was just a man. And I'm not going to go into refuting that in detail, but all of those are serious errors. Now, we can get along with believers on a lot of differences in doctrine. We really can. We may have our tussles over it, but whether you hold a different view of the end times, for example, your understanding of it, 
or if you have a different understanding of what communion is. Like we, our church, we, we believe that it's, it's representative. There's other denominations that believe there's more uh, to that. Well, we can disagree on that and still have some fellowship with each other, although they might not let you have communion there, <laughs> but that's another story. Uh, now, I may think that you have some doctrine that's not a primary doctrine, and I might think you have it wrong, and we could still enjoy fellowship as believers. I could disagree with you on your end times view, and we can still be uh, good friends. Being wrong about the mode of communion or baptism does not prevent you from being saved. So here we make a difference between what we would maybe call wrong doctrine or bad doctrine and heresy. Where does the jump happen from bad doctrine to heresy? Because this is an important thing to understand. Getting some doctrine wrong in and of itself does not necessarily mean you aren't saved. Because if that were the case, with all the denominations out there, you could say that since they all have slightly different ways of understanding certain things, then not all of them could possibly be right. Therefore, most of them would be wrong, right? But, but that's not the way it is, because salvation is a specific thing, and then some of the doctrines of the church are a little different. So having a doctrine wrong, you know, we hopefully we have it correct, but uh, misunderstanding something as far as doctrine goes doesn't necessarily mean you aren't saved. Believing a heresy, though, that does mean you're not saved. And here's why. Heresy is a belief that holds, that someone holds that prevents them from being saved because they do not truly believe in salvation biblically. So what do we need to have for salvation? Well, as one preacher likes to say, it's, you need to first understand you're a great sinner and then understand that Jesus is a great Savior. Well, that's true. Put another way, we must possess the humility to realize that our fallen state before God uh, puts us in a terrible place where we need a Savior and then we need to trust in the Savior. We must believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead. We must repent or turn from our sin and make a commitment to uh, righteousness and living that way. We must be decidedly convinced of our need for him and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. If you possess a saving faith, you are saved, whether or not you have all your doctrine correct or not. So I hope you understand the difference between that. But to believe in a heresy means you actually do not either believe in the Christ of the Bible or the God of the Bible or you believe in some other mode of salvation other than what the Bible makes clear. And so if you believe that Jesus never had a real human body as the docetists did, you cannot be saved because you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Not only that, God's salvation logically falls apart if you do not have a true death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as Paul said it too, if Christ was not raised from the dead, we of all people are to be pitied, right? Or if you believe like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus was not fully God, then you have again fallen for heresy. This time uh, the heresy is a little different, but it still leaves you unsaved because you do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible for your salvation. 
if that's the case. And therefore, you've believed a lie. The same problem arises if you say, well, Jesus was simply a man, a good teacher, whatever. God possessed him for a time, and that's it. But before he went to the cross, God left him. Same problem. So John is attacking, at the very least, the heresy of docetism here in 1 John. The docetists said Jesus didn't really have a human body. It was an illusion or something like that, or he was a spirit or whatever, but there was no physical body. So John fires off right from the start. Now, you notice he doesn't give kind of these introductions that Paul often does. He jumps right in with his, what I'm calling the threefold verification of what he says. He heard Jesus with his own ears. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. And he touched him with his own hands, as did the others included in the we that John is including himself in. Now, sometimes you could be a witness without all three of those, right? Let's say you were called as a witness in court because you were looking out the window one day and you saw someone else throw a punch at someone else. And now, now you're an eyewitness. And so you can be relied on to some measure as you go and tell your story from the witness stand. And the court will consider that testimony with the other evidence. Now, if the window was open and before you saw the hit, you heard the assailant shouting and making threats before throwing the punch, your evidence is now a little bit stronger. But the strongest evidence from a witness is the one who was punched, right? He saw it, he felt it, he heard it, and, uh, and his, his witness is reliable as well. Now, sometimes we can be deceived when we don't have all of our senses involved, right? We just saw recently in Sunday school discussing Jacob and how he deceived his father. So his father had lost one important sense, right? His sight. And Jacob, under the guidance of his mother, was seeking to receive the blessing that belonged to his brother. So Jacob does some things to decide his to uh, to to um, kind of get his father to believe that he was his other brother, his older brother, Esau. Now, Esau was a hairy guy, we know that. He was a hunter who wore different types of clothing than Jacob and so on. So Jacob dresses up in his brother's clothes. He puts goat skins on his neck and arms, or his mom does it for him, so that he'll be like hairy, Esau's hairy skin. And then he brings some food to Isaac, and Isaac hears the voice, and he thinks to himself, it sounds like Jacob. But he feels the hair, and he feels like that, even though it's goat skin, he says, well, this must be Esau, because he's hairy. And he smells Esau, because he's wearing Esau's clothes, so he's fooled. He wouldn't have been fooled, I believe, if he had had his sight. His scent was deceived, but his touch was deceived. His ears were actually not deceived. He said, I hear Jacob's voice. But he ignored that red flag, and... We can comment on that all we want. We spent plenty of time in Sunday school on that. Um, but John is saying here, my eyes are working, my ears worked, and my touch worked, and Jesus existed in the flesh. And we are witnesses of that. He was not a ghost or an illusion. He was a man. His life, verse 2 tells us, was manifest. What does that word manifest mean? It, it means something like obviously real. Or perhaps you could say evidence without dispute. So John is making a strong case here. We heard, we saw, we looked, we touched, 
And this is what we have testified to you. Don't be swayed by the heretics who are not witnesses, but believe those of us, John is saying, who were witnesses. We know the story. We were there. We saw it. We experienced it firsthand. And this was the word of life. Who was the word in the beginning according to John's gospel? Jesus. And now he proclaims this to you. I was waiting for Gunnar to shout it out. But uh, those he was writing to, I think we can apply this as well to all believers who read this, um, that we can all have fellowship with him. Their fellowship, the apostles, were, was with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and their desire is that all believers could be part of that fellowship. And he writes then that one reason to proclaim this is because it will bring great joy. So this is the introduction of the letter, so to speak. And as we continue through this book, John will have further warnings about those false teachers who are a danger to the church. And in the coming weeks, we will see some very important topics that John felt passionate about. Next week, we will finish chapter 1. And in the second half, Jesus, John speaks of the relationship between Christians and sin. And we need to understand we're not yet perfected in that area. And if we deny we have sin, we're de deceiving ourselves, John says. At the same time, we don't sin as a matter of course, right? We shouldn't anyway. But we should live in the light. But when we do sin, we have an advocate. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then in chapter 2, he expounds on the advocate. He is writing so that we don't sin, he writes. He says, I'm writing to you, I think in verse 1 of chapter 2, uh, so that you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, and remember, he's writing to the church. He's not just writing to the world and saying, hey, if you sin, uh, just confess it and you're good. He's writing to people who are already saved and who have put that saving faith in Christ. So he's writing this to the church and, and says, we have Jesus as our advocate. Again, if we say we abide in Christ, we ought to walk in the same way that he walked. And then he speaks uh, of a new commandment that's not really a new commandment, that we are to love one another. If you hate your brother, you're in the darkness. If you love, you're in the light. After that, he says, we're not to love the world. If we're in love with the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Then we get some warnings about antichrists. He returns to the problem of those who deny the biblical Christ. Anyone who denies the biblical Christ is a liar. John is concerned about people being deceived by those who have made Jesus out to be something different than what the Bible teaches. Then in chapter 3, John writes about how we are children of God. We are loved by him if we are in him. He returns yet again to encouraging believers to live in righteousness and not to be those who practice sinning. And this is another evidence of who is truly in Christ, that those who practice righteousness are of God. And he reminds us again and again that if we do not love our brother, we are not of God. And then in the second part of chapter 3, this is just an overview, we'll get here in the coming weeks, he spends a lot of time on loving one another. John, I said earlier, was called by some the apostle of love. His gospel was called the gospel of love. 
John obviously cares very deeply about this topic because it comes up again and again in his letters especially, that those who claim to be of Christ demonstrate love to one another. In chapter 4, John says we need to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Again, he's concerned about those who say that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Remember, that's a heresy. If you don't believe in the Christ described in Scripture, you cannot be saved. Anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh has the spirit of the Antichrist, which John says is in the world already. And then John returns again to the topic of love. And just give a preview of what we're coming in the coming weeks from John. You, some of you have this memorized even. 1 John 4, 7 to 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that topic, again, it just comes up again and again for John. Remember that love is one of the strong evidences that someone is in Christ. And then the last chapter, chapter 5 of this letter, John encourages the reader to overcome the world. The way to do that is through faith. He wraps up the letter with some recaps of the earlier themes and tells us the purpose of the letter that you may have assurance. How do you have assurance? If you have love, if you overcome the world, if you're living a life that's not driven by sin, but by righteousness, you can have assurance. Now, does he mean there that we're perfectly not sinning? Obviously not, because he also had said earlier, if you say you don't have sin, you're self-deceived. But rather, the one who is in Christ, righteousness is the default mode, and sin is an aberration. If you're not in Christ, it's the other way around. Sin is the normal mode of life, and anything you did that might resemble righteousness is just kind of by by fortune only, or something like that. (laughs) But, uh, But that's not who those are in Christ. So that's how you have assurance. If you have love, if you've overcome the world... In other words, you're not getting sucked into the world's system and your thoughts and your ways. If you're living a life that's not driven by by sin, but driven by a desire for righteousness, those are things that help us to have assurance. Now, John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, he gave us the purpose for his writing it. He wrote that Gospel so that people would believe in Jesus Christ. And and he wrote that in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. It says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the, the gospel of John was written in the evangelistic sense. He wanted people to read it and believe in Jesus Christ and become saved. This letter, 1 John, though, is written to those who already have put that faith in Christ. 
and so that they can have confidence. So his reason, he also gives the reason for this letter, which is in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, and it says this, I write these things to you who believe. See, there's our audience of the letter, right? You who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that we may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. And so we see that there is a slightly different focus, isn't there? From the Gospel of John written in this evangelistic sense, I want people to believe in Jesus. The letters of John written to encourage those who have become believers. So we have in John this passionate, loving apostle. And what he's passionate about is so clear, right? He wants the real and gospel, the real and the true and the honest gospel to be known. He wants believers to reject false teachings, such as the belief that Jesus didn't come in human form. He wants believers to make all attempts to rich, live in righteousness and not to sin. But at the same time, he wants believers to have this confidence that even when they do sin, they have an advocate, Jesus Christ, and if they confess the sin, they will be forgiven. And finally, he wants the life of both individual believers and the church as a whole to be marked by love. Not a superficial love that pretends everything's okay, but there's actually anger or resentment or hurt behind the facade. Not a love without action, but love that's demonstrated practically. The love of the believer should reflect the love of God. You know, the love of God, Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, that God showed his love that while we were what? Still, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Love is defined throughout Scripture. Paul said to the church in Corinth, love is patient and kind does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And of course, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It seems that Paul's theology of love agrees strongly with John's theology of love. Why? Because they both got that theology from Christ himself. But John really does enjoy that topic. <laughs> he comes back to it again and again. So, I don't know how long this journey through 1 John will take exactly. I can generally chart it out, but you never know. Things can change. But here's some homework I would ask that you maybe consider doing. That, uh, that book of 1 John is a pretty easy read. I said earlier, and I know everybody's reading speed may be different. You're probably uh, somewhere in the spectrum of 10 to 30 minutes to read that. But if you could read that every day during this study, you would be greatly blessed. If five chapters is too much, then read one chapter a day and just rotate through them again and again. And what you'll find is it will be amazing to you if you would commit to doing that, that you would automatically, without even trying, you would end up with a lot of that book memorized. If you would just kind of keep going through it. It's, it's kind of a, um, a lot of repetitive 
things in it that, that will help you to understand where, Paul's, where John's coming from. And, uh, and I think that would be a great benefit uh, to you. I have been doing that myself and sometimes more than once a day. And uh, it's been a great blessing to me over these past couple months. So I would encourage you to do that. And uh, as you consider what John is talking about here, uh, may we look forward to this study together with a desire that we would share John's heart, that we would care deeply that people would understand the true and right gospel, and that we would be people who are loving as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God that you've given. And this morning we've looked at this letter that John wrote to the churches that he cared so deeply about. And Lord, we're challenged through it, we're encouraged through it, and we're given extra security and assurance through it as well if we're in you. So I pray, Lord, that we would dedicate ourselves to live as we are called and to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, Lord, that we would know you better in order that we may glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Scott, we got a last song? All right.